It's Theology Thursday. So, uh, welcome back everyone. It's Andre here, standing in for Mike. I'm a pastor in Felixstowe in the United Kingdom. And uh, this is the Two Age Sojourner podcast. Um, Mike's away, he's in the States, and so he's asked me to, to hold the fort for a bit, and that's what I'm doing. And on this Theology Thursday, uh, we'll be talking about justification, the article upon which the church stands or falls, according to uh, Martin Luther and the Reformers. And so it's very, very important. However, it's not only important to uh, to Luther or to the Reformers, it's also very important uh, to the Lord Himself. Because I was preaching on Sunday night on the doctrine of justification from the parable of the tax collector and the Good Samaritan. It's very explicit in that parable that uh, it is the tax collector who falls on his knees and says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, a sinner who goes home justified, not the Pharisee who says, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other people. I don't do this and I, and I do these good works. It's the tax collector who shockingly goes home justified, not the Pharisee. This was uh, massively counterintuitive in the first century, and this was a huge shock um, to the Pharisees, obviously. But what was interesting to me was not only the parable itself, now clear it is about justification, but also, um, and that's, that's, by the way, from Luke 18. Uh, but not only is that passage very clear, but it comes in a context where it's talking about discipleship and the things that are very important to discipleship. And, and so the whole of that section really are providing the disciples with preparation for what it means to follow Christ. He's walking towards Jerusalem. He's walking towards his, his crucifixion and his death. And so in this journey towards Jerusalem, he's preparing the disciples uh, to follow him um, in the light of his death and resurrection. And um, Key themes that come through in that whole section are the cost of discipleship. The true discipleship is going to come at a cost. We're going to have to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. And also true discipleship is going to be informed by an eternal perspective. It's going to be thinking about the end from the beginning. It's going to be eschatological. It's going to be thinking about final judgment, eternal life, heaven, hell, reward, um, losing our life now so that we can save it later. Those two themes come together because our willingness to give up our life now is going to depend on whether or not we believe this life is all that there is. Um, so the famous Jim Elliot quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. To the extent that we believe that is to the extent that which will carry the cross uh, and bear the cost of discipleship. But coming back to justification, what's really interesting is that placed in that section, Jesus is saying that essential to true discipleship is a true knowledge of justification. And I happen to be uh, reading through James White's book, The God Who Justifies, a comprehensive study of the doctrine of justification. 
uh, with someone in my church. And because we've just felt that actually there is a lot of confusion. Um, I'm honestly always just amazed at how widespread the influence of the new perspective on Paul is. I go to churches where there is otherwise no theological interest. And yet, the one thing they will know about is Second Temple Judaism and the new perspective on Christ. Basically, uh, that whole issue has said about justification that the, the Reformers read into it some of their own medieval perspective and some of their own legal background. Um, they made it into a matter of how can we be assured of our salvation when in fact it was a matter of discerning who are God's people. So to be justified isn't so much about being assured of eternal salvation as it is being assured of who's in the covenant community. Um, the works of the law, which cannot justify you, don't so much refer to uh, our mor own moral goodness as it does just to the, the boundary markers of Jewish people. So circumcision, food laws, uh, that sort of thing were really what Paul was concerned with. To say we're, not, we're justified by faith apart from works of the law in the new perspective meant something like um, we have a valid place within the church community uh, not because of our Jewishness but because of our faith in Christ. Um, and so they would in some cases reject utterly, in other cases be a little bit wary of. The whole idea that justification has anything to do with we're saved by faith alone, through grace, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any of our deeds, in obedience to God, any kind of moral good that we might do, any performance in our part. I would say that was a, a, a misreading of the point, a reading of the of Galatians or a misreading of Paul from a medieval legal perspective. And um, James White's book's been helpful on this because he points out that actually justification in the Bible is a legal term. So we're right to see it. And the, the reformers are right to see it that way. But whether or not this expression works of the law only refers to the Jewishness of the law, or whether or not works of the law refers to all kind of moral laws. Is it just the ceremonial law, the things that made Jewish people distinctively Jewish? Or is it the moral law, that is, all of our good deeds, in, in obedience to the known law, if we were those who are Jewish and had the revealed law, or if we were those who are Gentiles, who had the law in our conscience, um, does uh, do the performance of good works contribute towards our final salvation. Obviously the danger is that if you say the whole debate was only about Jewishness and not about moral obedience, then the temptation is, and this is exactly what's happened, that ultimately your salvation depends upon not only faith, but also your moral performance. You come into the church community, you don't have to be Jewish to be a church member, but being a church member means about not just faith, but faithful living. And of course, it's a half-truth, isn't it? We want to indicate that, that works are important, that faith is important, um, but that 
our rightness before God, our standing before God is not determined at all by our moral deeds or our obedience to moral uh, commands at all or any commands, but simply through the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us through our faith in him. Um, and to defend that, we need to be able to show that this phrase that Paul uses, works of the law, does not only refer to ceremonial laws like circumcision and the food laws. And there's this really helpful bit in James White's book where he refers to Jonathan Edwards, who first picked up on this and dealt with it fairly comprehensively. And he gives seven arguments um, in, his, in his book, um, The God He Justifies. And I thought it would be helpful to run through them here, just so we can put this to bed. I feel like these arguments do put this to bed. And so if we can do that now, I think that would be really helpful. Um, the first argument is this, that simply Paul doesn't only use the expression works of the law, but he uses the expression works generally. And so it would be wrong to assume that whenever he uses the expression uh, by works, he means by works of the law. Um, it would also be, uh, and by works of the law, only ceremonial laws. Um, because he uses the two interchangeably, but sometimes they seem to be referring more broadly. So we just have to be careful that we're not isolating one bit of Paul's terminology from the other. That when he's using works of the law, isn't that just a more extensive way of referring to works more generally? And when he's using works more generally, isn't he only using works of the law uh, to clarify that the works we ought to be most concerned with are not the works or the laws about um, Roman government, for example, but the, the laws of, of God given in his, the moral laws. That's the, that's the first argument. The second argument is this, and I think this is really very helpful, that Paul's whole argument about uh, the law is that it condemns both Jew and Gentile. It shuts their mouths. Um, so it says this, the apostle, um, uh, no, sorry, Edwards then in the second place quite rightly observes that when Paul speaks of the transgression of men in Romans 3, he speaks of transgressions of the moral law and not the ceremonial. Then, given the conclusion in chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, where the moral law has brought all under sin, obviously, it is then impossible to avoid seeing the statement, therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, must include the moral law at the very least, and that it exemplifies the moral law in reality. And so he concludes, and therefore, our breaches of the moral law argue simply that we cannot be justified by the law that we have broken. In other words, it's, it, or to put it in my own words, it's saying that there is no way that the ceremonial law, which Paul refers to, could condemn both Jew and Gentile. Conceivably, if you were a Jewish person who had been given ceremonial laws and you did not keep those laws, you could be condemned. But you could not be condemned as a Gentile for not keeping the ceremonial laws you were never given. And so um, it cannot, when Paul refers to works of the law in that context as being silencing 
and that saying no one, no flesh, Jew and Gentile, will be justified in his sight. It simply cannot be talking about the ceremonial law. Uh, I find that pretty compelling. I feel like that stops the argument right there. But there's more. His third argument is like this. Um, his third arc argument is likewise compelling. In the preceding sections of Romans, the law was the moral law, as in Romans 2.12, where it is obviously not the ceremonial law that is in view. Um, so in the previous sections leading up to, to chapter 3 and where all the controversy is about, uh, the law was obviously the moral law in chapter 2 verse 12 in that it was written on the conscience um, of non-Christians. It cannot be that the ceremonial law was written on the conscience of non-Christians in, in the same way that Christians who have the law written on our hearts in the New Covenant aren't compelled to not eat shellfish or pork um, or keep our sideburns at a certain length or, or whatever it is. The ceremonial laws were temporary and they were only known because they were revealed explicitly to the Jewish people for a temporary purpose. Um, so by saying that it's written on the conscience of, of non-Christians, building on that argument, it just simply cannot be the ceremonial law. And that's how Paul's been using works of the law. Um, and so it'd be very odd for it to suddenly take on a very a much more restricted meaning um, in chapter 3. Uh, fourthly, Edwards writes, It is evident that when the apostle says we cannot be justified by the works of the law, he means the moral as well as the ceremonial law. By his giving this reason for it, that by the law is the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20, it is a miserable shift and a violent force to put upon the words to say that the meaning is that by the law of circumcision comes a knowledge of sin. Because circumcision, signifying the taking away of sin, puts men in mind of sin. So, um, again, I think a very strong argument here in Romans 3.20 that says the purpose of the law um, is to bring about a knowledge of sin. But no knowledge of sin can come about through simply the ceremonial law. It doesn't reveal uh, the moral side of the law. It only reveals the ceremonial side. And so it, it does a great injustice to it. It's evident that the works of the law means that it brings about uh, a moral knowledge of sin. Um, it can't simply be a reference to, to circumcision. And his fifth argument is that it is evident that the apostle does not mean only the ceremonial law, because he gives this reason why we have righteousness and a title to the privilege of God's children, not by the law, but by faith, and that the law worketh wrath. Now the way in which the law works wrath, by the apostle's own account in the reason he himself annexes, is by forbidding sin and aggravating the guilt of transgression. So similarly, if the law's um, not only exposing our sin, but is also bringing God's wrath upon us for our guilt, um, then that simply cannot refer to the ceremonial law alone. It has to refer, uh, refer to the moral law um, as well, and I think primarily as well, because uh, sin or knowledge of the, the ceremonial law isn't going to bring about God's wrath. Um, the sixth argument is simply that the ceremonial law doesn't exclude boasting. So if... 
Paul is saying the whole idea of being justified by faith apart from works of the law is that it excludes boasting. That's part of God's purpose, to bring glory to himself, to glorify his grace so that no man can boast. But if it's only saying that you're saved by faith apart from circumcision, um, then actually there's still a huge amount of scope for boasting. Because, okay, so I'm not going to boast in, in circumcision, but I am going to boast in how much money I gave to church or how many old ladies I helped across the street or whatever it is. Um, it doesn't achieve the force of what Paul's saying it does. That removes boasting. Um, seventhly and finally, um, it speaks about those under the law as being under the curse of the law in Galatians 3. When he says that they are under the law, uh, they that are under the law are under the curse. That cannot simply be the ceremonial law. It's not, you're not under a curse simply for, uh, for not being Jewish. His whole argument all the way through is that both Jew and Gentile are under the curse of the law. That cannot simply be the ceremonial law. And to this I would add only one more argument, um, which is that if works of the law referred only to circumcision, or in Galatians when Paul refers to circumcision, he's only referring to the ceremonial law, then circumcision is a terrible example because even prior to the ceremonial law, Abraham was circumcised. So if Paul only wanted to talk about circumcision as a, as a, a feature of the ceremonial law rather than the whole sum of the law, then circumcision isn't the clearest example of that because you could easily point to Abraham and say, yes, but Abraham was circumcised. Um, and so the whole argument kind of falls flat. Well, there you have it. Those are eight reasons um, to hear the, to read the phrase, the works of the law, as being the entire moral law of God, not only the Jewishness of the law or the, circums uh, the um, uh, ceremonial aspects of the law. Okay, that's all from me today. That's Theology Thursday. And see you again tomorrow.